I'm impressed with what you guys have going on here. Well, we gotta make the most of our time on the beach, so we. What is this? I see a grill with grilled chicken. Yes. And you, what? You did you build this? Well, it's, it's meant to fit in a uh, boat uh, pole holder on a boat. So I was just modified and just got a piece of PVC pipe and clamped it into it. It's so. probably one of the most creative inventions I've seen for a grill. <laughs> I'm looking over here. We're sitting here. I'm like, God, they got it dialed in. <laughs> we try. You know, if you do, you do this for a few years, you finally figure out how to make it fun. Oh, man, this is perfect. I do a podcast on Nantucket oh. called Inside the Whale, and it just this is perfect. Where are you guys from? We're here, Nantucket. So you can see that you guys have been doing it so yeah. for so long that you're totally pro. Right. How many years of beach? 41. For him. 41. Yep. I was just talking with someone and we were saying, now this particular spot, we're at Radio Tower, is it normally, when, when you first came here, has it gotten progressively crowded? Oh, More God. crowded? Oh, yes. Like when you first got here, it was... As, as of for today? Yeah. Yeah. But there's been a handful of people who have left already and stuff, but yeah, it's definitely grown. I, I'd say it's probably tripled in how many people are here. Since you first came here? Right, which was about... 41 years ago. Oh, the island? Yeah, the population's... I, when I moved here, I think the population was like 4,500 year-round. Now we're talking 20. It's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. Do you think it'll peak? No. As long as they keep tearing down houses or... To open it's, up kind of, it's a cycle. Yeah. yeah it's totally uh, crazy. Hi. That was Nantucket resident Rob Horn on the beach. Happy July, Nantucket. Welcome to Inside the Whale... This is episode 14. I am Doug Cody. I am your host. You were just listening to a conversation I had uh, while I was on the beach. I was sitting on the beach and I look over and I see this guy who's got such a dialed in bomber beach setup that I had to go over and introduce myself and, and find out who this guy was. And clearly, uh, you know, he's been here 41 years. So if you can't get it right on the beach after 41 years, you got problems. But uh, Rob Horn clearly had it going on. He had this cool contraption set up, dug into the sand with his uh, grill sitting on top of it and uh, was grilling corn. Full-on feast, midday. Just looked like a total beach pro. And that's what you got to be out here. It's summer. It's July. And the Nantucket puss face is out. Just go to any one of the intersections. I've seen it, but... Uh, I try to ignore it. Horse blinders. Anyway we'll, we'll get, anyway, we'll get right to the episode. My guest today is Sunny Daly, Nantucket's uh, very own doula and midwife in training. Uh, she was our doula during my fiance's pregnancy and is really great and an asset to the island. Anybody that's going through the process of pregnancy to childbirth, I highly recommend Sunny Daly. Talk about positive vibes. She is uh, amazing. I can't say enough about her. She really helped us uh, through the process. And she's an important uh, person out here for all those couples, people going through having kids. And Sabiel Anderson was our midwife. And uh, we can't talk about uh, midwife and dueling on the island without mentioning Sabiel Anderson. She was our midwife. And she's been a big influence and uh, mentor sort of to Sunny Daly. A great conversation. Uh, that being said, enjoy July weather. I'm glad you clicked on it. You're listening to Inside the Whale. Here we go, folks. Sunny Daly. Show us your crooked jaw. Show us your wrinkled brow. Rise. He rises. That's Glamour Radio, right? Or right. Podcasts, I should or, say. Or, or, huh? Yes, you're interrupting. We're here live at Four Todd Studios. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all right. You can say hello with Sunny Daly and her son Orion joining us on here. And you can't really hear us on the headphones, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. And phone's going off. We're professional here. <laughs> That's the beauty about a podcast is you can edit it and you can flip it around. Cool. Is, this, is this your first time this, ever doing a podcast? This is my first time ever doing a podcast. And this is funny because 
when you were our doula for Piper, I was talking about doing a podcast. It's true. And here's your dream. And here it is. And this is episode 14. Fantastic. So we've done 14 of these. So we're here with Sunny Daly, uh, Nantucket's doula. How, are there any other doulas out here? Not currently practicing. Nope. So Sunny is the only doula and in midwife and training, correct? Yes. Yep. When will you become a midwife? Ah, uh, Timing. It's all about finishing uh, the coursework, and then there's also a clinical component to it that I'm working on, and I actually go out to Utah so I can really experience a lot of births in a shorter amount of time than I would if I just stayed on Nantucket. Right. So once I get the academic and the clinicals pulled together, then I have to sit for a national exam. So I'm hoping in the spring of 2016, I'll be ready. That you'll be ready. Take that exam. So you'll be a doula and a midwife. Yes. So we should probably reverse here because I like to get the the backstory of how you arrived on Nantucket. Well, you weren't always a doula. No, I was not always a doula. So how did you end up here? Where are you from originally? It's a long and twisted road. and As uh, many people are. That's the beauty <laughs> of it, though. Everyone has crazy stories. So how did you end up here? So the short story is before we lived on Nantucket, we lived in Kansas on my husband's family farm. So they had about 300 acres and a bunch of horses and a giant garden. And it was kind of an idyllic place to raise uh, my one child at that point. And my uh, father-in-law unexpectedly died. And the mother put the farm up for sale and said, I'm moving to Idaho. You guys want to come? And I looked at my husband and I was like, no way. I can't move to Idaho because I'm an East Coast girl. I'm from Connecticut originally. So you grew up in Connecticut. I did. What town? Uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. Before oh, you're a Fairfield. Fancy. You're a Fairfield County girl. Yes, I'm one of those. It's funny because you really don't seem very Fairfield. County, oh, that's good. If that's if that's a broad generalization, but that works. Um, <laughs> I had I had actually lived in Arizona. That's where I met my husband, and then we traveled a lot on the West Coast. So I have an affinity for either coast, um, but the Midwest is not my cup of tea at all. Yeah, the Midwest. <laughs> I know, I know. It's hard not to to rub feather the wrong people the wrong way by saying a comment, but it, the Midwest it does have its charm. But I it, don't connect with it very much either. Well, I was hoping I would find that charm because you know a lot of farmers. I thought it'd be down to earth, you know, back to basics. But I was 23 at the time, and I moved there with dreadlocks like down to my knees. You know, not married, baby on my hip. Moved to a very conservative area. And the first person I met was a rancher. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, we're going to have beef and blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I just passed the plate and didn't eat any of it. And he said, why aren't you eating? And I said, well, I'm a vegetarian. And he was like, what do you eat? And now, mind you, this guy was probably in his 60s, but he looked to be in his 80s. He was about 300 pounds, and he had just had a triple bypass. <laughs> and he was trying yeah. to convince me that I should eat what he was eating. Yeah, and right? I was like, You're um. Like, uh, maybe I want to. You might want to think about that. It's funny, though. How long ago was that? That was, gosh, 17, 18 years ago. A long time ago. I think the vegetarian movement has gone. I'm a vegetarian. Ah, I'm a pescatarian. It's been about a year. But that I made, mine wasn't for, uh, you know, it wasn't for animal rights choices. It was more of a health thing. Right. So either side of the fence, I, I definitely think it depends. I get it. I get why people would love a steak. Yeah. I do too. And that was my first like, okay, when you're 20, everything, especially the type of 20 year old I was, I was so opinionated. It was my first lesson in bite your tongue and listen. But he was a family friend and he kept coming around and it wasn't the only thing that we disagreed upon. And there were a lot of things, a lot of prejudices, a lot of um, large farms out there. So agribusiness was a huge pusher of sort of the agenda and what people talked about around the dinner table. And I just had a hard time biting my tongue, but I did. I learned to listen. Did they work for Monsanto? Like a lot of them were Monsanto farmers. Yeah, I mean Isn't it was funny. It's it's uh, it was bizarre. You would drive past thousands of acres with Monsanto stakes, you know, in the ground, and uh, to have a discussion about it was really interesting. I was wondering if that I had this thought the other day about Monsanto. Like I don't see much rebuttal to the there's so much negative press about there i don't i don't see a lot of them saying hey we're trying to make a change or any sort of advertising that's saying we we realize that they're everyone says they're the devil i mean mm. it's known now they're they're just kind of an evil company i think it's really hard to be a farmer because that's one of my dreams is to someday have a farm but 
it's hard to make money being a farmer. And I think these farmers are really the Midwestern farmers that have thousands of acres. They're just like, how, how do I make any money at that? And I think it's Monsanto gives them that little, There's, like, hey, try a, this. Here's a couple hundred thousand dollars to keep, yeah, try out our new seed or the corn. Yeah, yeah everybody's always looking for something better. Well, the Midwest is, in, is you know, it, it is what it is, I think. And if you're going to end up choosing to live where you want to live, I think if you have fortunate enough to make it out here or make it to the coast. Yeah. <laughs> Just being around water. There's water there. But I understand what you're saying, back to your point. Yeah, about it was just, just a strange culture. And so we <laughs> we had two children when my father-in-law died. And we had been living in a tiny little barn. And the horses had more room than we did. So I said to my husband, I was like, this, something's got to give. You know, we've got to do something. And he said, okay, I don't really know what that is. But how about we pack up everything we own in our pickup truck and the cat and the kids and we'll just drive to the East Coast and see what happens. And not know where, you didn't know where you We either. had no clue what we were doing. And or, in, where, or what town you're going to no, go to. No idea. We were just going East. You know, and looking <laughs> back, I'm like, what was I, crazy? But I think I was just desperate to get out of the situation we were in. So we started driving to the East Coast and we got to Ohio. And my brother, who lives out here, who's lived out here for much longer than I have, he calls me and he goes, so I know this guy, he needs a carpenter. So, you know, we had never been to Nantucket. All we knew was it was an island. It had no chain stores, not a lot of traffic. I said, that sounds great. Let's go. So my husband moved out here and lived in a property where they were jacking the house up. And, you know, he was kind of camping and working. So he did and that. And where were you while he was I doing was that? in Maine at my parents' house because, gotcha. you know, it's the housing shuffle. So huh. he worked out here for the summer. And then we found a tiny little apartment, like, right at the end of the runway. <laughs> And we moved, by the airport. Yeah. Yeah. And so we moved out here and I remember the first night being so hot and the planes just constant. Mm. Yeah. And the, the smell of the jet fumes. And I was like, what have I done? You're like maybe the Midwest isn't so bad. <laughs> I totally had that thought. <laughs> <laughs> so we lived yeah. there for a little bit and then moved on and uh, we've been here ever since. Wow. So that when you got here, you were doing what? Just living? I was home with the kids because I was homeschooling at that point. So I was teaching them, and that was my full-time job. Was that when you first started getting the, the inspiration that you might want to be? And when did, like, I think we should explain what a doula is first. Like, how, what led you to doulaism? Is that what it would be called? I like that word. That works. Doulaism. So the story behind that is when I had my daughter, um, I was, like I said, I was young, um, but I had a home birth with her. So I had her at home with midwives, and I remember turning to my midwife right after the birth, and I said, this is what I want to do with my life. And she looked at me and she said, you need to be a mom first. And at that point in my mm. life, I was so mad at her. I was like, no, this is you're supposed to be encouraging me. Why are you telling me to be a mom first? And now I completely understand because being a mom is no joke. I mean, being a dad is no joke either. But to be a midwife, you really need to have the space in your life to put your needs to the back burner and take care of somebody else's needs. And I don't think I could have done that at 20 years old with a baby on my hip. So what I did was I sort of played around with what could I do while I had children that wasn't going to make me feel divided about, you know, whose needs am I attending to? And I actually started by becoming a childbirth educator because that way I could set a schedule and I could know, okay, my husband can be home with the kids and I can go out and teach. And so I started that way and then that sort of took off and my kids were getting older. So I trained to be a doula. Which and is what? What's the definition of a doula? So a doula is a non-medical professional. So somebody that does not do blood pressures or checks or anything like that. But what they do is they attend to a woman's needs when she's in labor, delivering, and then in the immediate postpartum period. So since my kids were older, I had the ability when I was on call to leave in the middle of the night or leave at two o'clock in the afternoon um, to, to be with a woman when she was in labor. So the, the doulaism sort of grew out of the childbirth education. And as my kids got older, then I was like, okay, this dream of midwifery, where am I going to go with that? How is that going to work? Um, and that, you know, honestly is a huge thing that the whole family has to agree on because living on Nantucket, the education component of midwifery is a struggle because um, there is one midwife that lives out here part-time. Yeah, we should, talk, we should talk about Sabeel Anderson, which uh, – Hopefully, if Sabeel listens, she'll be a guest on here, too. The idea was to have both of you guys on because it's you guys do such a wonderful job out here with between the midwife and doula. And uh, we'll have Sabeel on as a guest uh, at some point. But she's, she really 
She is the midwife on Nantucket and has been for years and is now dividing her time between Vermont and uh, Nantucket. So when I sort of thought, okay, I want to shift gears and continue my education and become a midwife, the first step was to talk to my family because that meant we all had to agree together that mom was going to go to school and, you know, that's a huge commitment. And then to be on call and to work with Seville. So the family was the first part. Thank God I had that support because it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah, Orion, that didn't bother you. <laughs> He's, I mean, my, my kids have grown up with this, you know, yeah. so it's not so much I was worried about them. It was more like my husband really is the heavy hitter in our family. Like he's the one that keeps the wheels on, pays the bills while I'm going to school and taking clients on. It has to work for the two of us because it's, you know, I, I don't want it to be a, a burden to our marriage. Yeah, and it could easily. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of late nights and there's a lot of like my schedule's crazy. You have to jump in and pick up the kids. And, you know, he's he's a one man show running a business. So I don't want to step on his business either. So I received his blessing. And then the next part was to go to Seville um, because as the schooling works, there is an academic component. But then there's also this apprentice model where you're working with an existing midwife. So I had to go to her and say, is there space in your practice to bring somebody on where you're going to be teaching me and overviewing, or I don't know if that's the right word, but supervising the academic component. Yeah, um, and there, that's a huge academic component. Yeah, I t- I'm actually in an accredited program because midwifery has changed a lot in the last 20 years. So when I had my kids... Which is could, something I think we should talk about, is the idea of this midwife and the doula was sort of this... Uh, kind of a hippie totally type had this loosey goosey preconceived notion about like hippie midwife doula thing seems out there and there's really been a paradigm shift which is which is really why I wanted to have you on the show today to talk about because it's such a an important part now of pregnancy and childbirth and you know especially on Nantucket with the population so it really is important you know, it's a it's a cool it's a cool occupation, and I think that you know, like what we're talking about, it's uh, you know, it's it's sort of changed, right? Absolutely, and you know, I'm thrilled to hear you say like, oh, it's so important because I really passionately feel it is so important because in the 21st century, it's all about options. You know, you have a million options. Where do you want to birth? How do you want to birth? Who do you want with you? You know, what kind of feeling do you want when you're going through this experience? And that looks totally different from one family to another, as it should, because we all have different histories. We have different things we want to experience. So as a doula, I'm able to go into a lot of different scenarios. They're not all natural births by any means at all. There, you know, some people want just support. They want somebody there that they can turn to and say, is this normal? What should I do? Or, you know, to have the partner be able to just tag out and be like, I got to take a walk. You need to be with my partner just so I can clear my head. So I do attend to families in the hospital. I've attended C-sections. I've attended natural birth and everything in between. Um, So, you know, the doula role is, I think, especially important in the 21st century because you have so many choices. Yeah, I almost, in the simplest terms, it's almost like uh, you're, you're a liaison and you're just an advocate for the, for the parents, that they're the new parents. Yeah. And, you know, I can, I, now that we've, I've been through the process with you and Sabeel. I can attest to the the importance of it and just having that uh, extra information. And I guess it in traditionally it would be sort of the mother. It would be your your mom's the parental role. But if they're not here, like a lot of us on Nantucket don't have your parents here to have that support, mm-hmm. the doula becomes even more important and makes that process it's just smoother. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say the mother role because I think traditionally it was sort of the mother or other women that would take care of each other through birth. But what I have found is birth is extremely emotional and it's extremely emotional for the family going through it, but also for the grandmother, you know, and the grandmother wants to attend to her daughter or her son's every emotional and physical need, but they come sort of with their own history and their own vision of what you know, birth is supposed to look like. And for a lot of women, that was 30 years ago, the last birth that they went to. So I think it's really, interesting. yeah, it's really hard for a grandmother to be able to first check her experience as her experience and then check her emotions as her emotions and then be a current enough on her information that she can really advocate for the parents. 
Um, so I kind of think of it like if you want your mother there, have your mother there, but let her be emotionally involved and let her be your mom, you know, have a doula there so that she can be the one that's sort of outside of the really intense emotions and can say something like, okay, try this option or let's take some time to think about your options. Um, because I'm never going to speak for a family, but what I try to do is help them remember, okay, this is what you said when you were pregnant. This is what's going on now. How do you want to progress? Um, which is really hard if you've been up for 12 hours or you're emotionally, you know, high and low and everything or in between. Or 30 hours. Or th- yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, and it's a stressful situation. You know, your job, the, the doula title is, uh, there's an intensity to it. It's almost like, you know, you're part medical assistant, you're part emotional. It's a, uh, and, and same with the midwife too. And you're talking about delivering someone's baby. Yeah, the midwifery step is a big one. Um, I think, like you were saying, people think it's kind of this hippie thing. Um, The responsibility a midwife has is astronomical. And the training that midwives have, especially now with the way the structure is with accreditation and exams and everything, there's a huge responsibility. And they have a, a giant amount of training behind them. So somebody like Sabeel is not just coming in and saying, breathe, I'll catch your baby. You know, <laughs> she has, I think she's attended over 500 births, you know, and all of them have been natural. So she's seen unmedicated birth 500 times. And what's your number now? Your number's growing. Right? My number is growing, but I've only been at it for a fraction of the year. So I'm close to 100. Um, and those are both in the hospital and um, natural birth, home birth, um, birth centers. So when you start looking across a spectrum like that and you think about that sort of training and the tools that somebody like that would have, um, you know, it's, it's a huge responsibility with a lot of education behind it. Um, and a midwife is not just the hold your hand and breathe, but she's also monitoring heart tones and the health of the mother and making decisions about, you know, is this a safe scenario to continue at home or do we need to transfer before we're in a bad situation? You know, it's a huge responsibility. And that's why a lot of people are saying to me, like, when are you going to be done? When are you going to be done? I'm not rushing. I want to make sure that I have the education I need so that families can feel confident in trusting the life of the mother and the life of the baby to me. Yeah, and I think uh, I was just going to ask you, why do you think, specifically on Nantucket, there's been a rise of home births? So the importance of the doula now, you're as busy as you've ever been. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that it's become more popular? You know, it's an interesting question that I play around with. I think the role of the doula first became more popular because somebody, you know, when you're going through the experience, you want one person that's there with you through thick and thin. You don't want the nurse, you know, and I, I don't mean to point out individuals, but often there's a lot of care providers when you're going through the hospital system. And I think that that's hard for families to make that connection and feel like, okay, that's the person that's going to be there with me. So I think the doula is appealing because you have that one person and you have a relationship with them. So she knows you in a way that's different than just whoever's walking through the door. And I think the midwifery component is growing because, you know, hospitals are great when you need them. But we have to remember that, you know, women have been giving birth since the beginning of time. You know, it's not a medical emergency. It's it's what we do. So if you're in good health and the baby is in good health, then having a home birth is a safe option, provided your care provider has the training to know, okay, this is safe or we need to transfer. You know, so I think that that's why things are starting to shift is people are starting to say, right, this is a wellness issue, not an illness issue. Yeah, I think you're right. And there's a lot more information that's out there. There's a lot more uh, documentaries. I mean, now most parents have watched The Business of Being Born, Ricky Lake's documentary. And I feel that people are, it's a control thing. And I think that they're realizing that the, 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 the hospital model is necessary for certain components but it's people taking control of their own situations absolutely absolutely and and, you know again like you said I think now that there's more studies coming out um, like Europe just released a giant study they've been following midwives and the care that midwives are giving to low-risk women and the outcomes are better with midwives than they are in the hospitals so those sorts of sorts of studies are starting to come out and I think it's really helpful for us in America because we like the studies we're like give us the facts you know, it's one thing to feel good about it, but show they us want the numbers. Show us the numbers, and it's hard because insurance calls a lot of shots in the United States, and currently insurance is not paying in in Massachusetts for home births. 
So who's going to fund the study to say, you know, are midwives safer or hospitals? Well, this is interesting because before you came, I was doing a little research and I looked online and they said that uh, insurance companies, uh, statistically, it's actually cheaper, Much cheaper for insurance companies if they were to cover home births mm-hmm. because there's less, there's less medical intake. Right. Absolutely. So there's a weird contradiction in there. There is. And right now in Massachusetts, we actually have legislation that keeps going to the House and they keep kicking it around because what we're trying to do is set some standards and saying, okay, this is what a midwife is bringing if they're licensed to the table. This is their training. This is what they're able to do. And the ultimate goal is first to have a standard. So all midwives are practicing exactly the same in the state of Massachusetts. But then beyond that, to be able to go and turn to an insurance company and say, okay, here's our credentials, essentially. How about we work together to figure out how this can benefit you? Because again, like you said, insurance companies would send a, save a ton of money. Using a ton of price. money. Yeah, that was the, I just saw and that. And families would too. So what do you think the reservation, is it just because there isn't enough medical or is there some sort of kickback between the... I think it's a very twisted web of why. And I think... Of red tape and... Yeah, I think there's, you know, it not to undermine the responsibility either because there's a huge responsibility around birth. But I think, like you said, it's all about choice for families. Give them the information and let families decide. Let women decide where and with whom they want to give birth and not say you have to go here because of money. And I, I think we should also talk about, too, the flip side of, it, of, of not doing it a home birth. You know, the home birth is an intense process. Totally. And I'm talking not only just the the actual experience of the home birth, but just the amount of materials. And let's face it, not everyone wants to turn their living room into a birthing center. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's easier to have the hospital deal with all these little things that come up during a birth. So I get that. Mm-hmm. And I get that some families decide that we just, you know, I want to go in the hospital. Yep. I want to know that if there's a problem we can, it, there's doctors and a medical team. Right. So I totally understand that. I don't, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that sort of mindset, but I think it just varies couple to couple, you know? Yeah. And I, I would completely and you as the, agree with and, you. And the doula, you can help guide the couple, right? Well, and that's just it. That's sort of why I, you know, a lot of people ask if you're a midwife, are you going to still be a doula? And absolutely. Because I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. I don't think everybody should deliver at home. I don't think everybody should deliver in the hospital. I think it's really what I'm trying to do is encourage people to make their own decision. You know, become educated about your options. And then choose what really makes sense for you. You know, this is your birth, not mine. I want yeah. it to be good for you. So you would steer a couple, I think, based on their dynamics. So it, it's funny. It's a lot of personal dynamics. Like- it's a lot of personal dynamics. And then there's a lot of health history. You know, if there's somebody that clearly is not a good candidate for a home birth, it makes no sense for me to push you to a home birth or for you to say, yeah, this makes, you know, medical sense for me because there are conditions that are better handled with supervision of a doctor and nurses without a doubt. But there's also those, those people that are perfectly healthy and everything is fine, you know, and you don't necessarily have to have a a heavy handed birth with a a family with those sort of, uh, situations. Yeah, it's and and on Nantucket, it's gotten more, more pop. It's gotten popular, right? You're as busy as you've ever been. Absolutely, I've had a great year, and I think what's happening on Nantucket is there's a really big culture around birth being this great experience, and I don't think it's accidental. I think the hospital and I have worked really hard together to educate families about what it looks like, and when people are educated, they're a lot less fearful. They have an easier time dialoguing with their doctor and their nurses. And I think that Dr. Kim really enjoys that kind of relationship with her clientele. And then we also have the community school, which is a great resource for new families. And they've jumped into the childbirth education program and saying, okay, after the baby's here, this is how we can help you. So I think our community does an exceptional job of sort of connecting the pieces for expectant families. And then it becomes this like, oh, okay, this is a great experience. I'm looking forward to this instead of just, oh, yeah, we're going to have the baby and, you know, blah, 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 which it can be in some of the bigger areas because the mentality is different. The community support is different. The experiences are different. And your classes have got – you teach a class at the uh, the community center, I teach um, through the hospital, 
and they, we work in conjunction with the community school. So the last night we have a boot camp night where, the, where we have new families come in and talk about their experience and they bring their babies. So a lot of the dads get like their hands-on experience. Which we talk about helpful. how relationships <laughs> shift. Yeah, it's a great class. Yeah, and I was just going to, my, my point about bringing that up was seeing the enrollment jump because oh, it's gone through the roof the it's population is is just keeps growing on nantucket so there's more and more of a need for a doula absolutely absolutely is there is there anyone that's interested that you know of that's going to start doing dueling with you maybe or i don't know anybody right now that can commit to it because again the idea of being a doula is fantastic you know like oh i'm going to help all these families i'm going to be around all these babies it's going to be great but the thing that's really hard is you don't know when you're going to be on call. You don't know if you're going to miss your kid's baseball game or birthday party. You because know, someone's or going into labor. Somebody's or... going off island or going into labor. You can't go off island at a whim. You know, you're really on call for a good month around the woman's due date. So that's hard for a lot of people with young families. And you can't plan. You know, there can be 14 women due in a month and nobody's going to hire you. And then the next month there's six women due and three of them want to hire you. You know, so you don't, you never know from month to month what that's going to look like. And that's a hard thing. Um, add on top of that, if you need a job to sustain you day to day, how are you going to say, oh, I can't come to work today. I got to go to a birth, you know? So it's, it's a tricky it's, mix. Yeah. I can, I can see how that would be a little bit dicey trying to juggle all that, especially when people are relying on you and that yeah. component, it's not something you can just blow off. Totally. <laughs> so I guess you, you do have to have an understanding family. Yeah, if I didn't have my husband saying, yeah, we're going to make this work, then it just wouldn't work at all. Uh, because, you know, I've tried to have jobs in between. And, you know, I was really fortunate. I worked for Wendy Hudson for a while when she opened Mitchell's. And she was great because she was like, yep, you can do your job. And then if you need to duck out and go to a birth, you can. And that was like such a gift. You know, that that's funny that you bring that up because I was thinking about my experience now, too, is I had a boss. I was working downtown and I, my boss knew that I was a musician. So if I got a gig, I could bust out and go play. Everyone has a million jobs on Nantucket. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that, that flexibility is really important. It is. And know? I just always felt like I was imposing. So I've tried to figure out, you know, what other kind of jobs can I have where I'm not imposing on a shopkeeper, you know, to let me go when she might be like, are you kidding me? It's July. I can't scare yeah. you right now. So you know, I have some other things that I do in addition, and I'm sort of my own boss that keeps things going. Yeah. So now, do we set a record on Nantucket this year for births? Yes, we did. Let, let's. This winter, which is when our daughter was born, was a busy, particularly busy winter for uh, childbirths on Nantucket. Yeah, and you know, the hospital folks may be able to correct these numbers a little bit, um, but my understanding is last year they had 130 babies born on the island which I've been here 10 years and or 12 years now. And when I first got here, those numbers were more like 50, 60. So to jump up like that in the last couple of years is remarkable. Um, and it was ever since the recession hit. Once the, once the recession was kind of dying back, then people started having babies again. And, you know, my prediction is this year is going to be even bigger because remember last winter? <laughs> yeah, that was a busy... I can think of right off the top of my head, I can think of four people that yeah. had babies. Last winter, it snowed a lot. So what else are you going to do but make babies? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I know. Well, so, all these storms are good baby-making weather. Yeah, I actually inwardly <laughs> celebrate when it's snowing like mad. <laughs> yeah. Well, it actually it speaks to the, the population, though. keeps mm -hmm. continues to grow. Nantucket is certainly in a boom right now, I would say. And if you just look at the birth rate right now. Well, and look Nantucket. at the new school that's being built and the Boys and Girls Club. There's a lot of families here that are choosing to stay here. you know, Year-round. Yeah, and raise your family here. Yeah, this was my first winter here, and I had a baby. It was a doozy. <laughs> Welcome to Nantucket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was, it was great. You know, and I, I really maintain this at... I really got a sense of the community, especially fall through the winter. You yeah. really see all the people that you don't. Right now, everyone's going a million different ways. And in the wintertime, I feel you really get a sense of the community of Nantucket. Absolutely. Which is really special. It and really I, is. I mean, it sounds a, like a cliche, but. No, it's definitely, a, it's not a bad place to raise your kids. I agree. 
So um, what are some of the, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the things, the negative things about being a doula that, that, that are the stressful p- components of it that, you know, you're put in these situations where family, you're brought into these couples and I like, I think it's not, it's entertaining to me or maybe the people listening, there's dynamics and you're the doula and you're helping it. And so one of the things when you worked with us, you talked about making sure that the, the parents were on the same page. Right. You know, and you mentioned that you've been in situations where the people weren't on the same page and it was pretty awkward. It's hard. So I thought that would be interesting to talk to because people listening can understand that component of, you know, being the dual and that, the relationship that you need to have with these two people. Yeah. I mean, you're being invited into probably the most intense period of a couple's life, you know, and that's a huge responsibility. And I don't know the family the way they know each other. All I try to do is support them in being honest with each other. And that's tough because we're talking about the big stuff here. We're not talking about do we buy this TV or something no, or it's, whatever. No, it's life or death. Totally. <laughs> so you're walking in into a situation where you might not even know this family at all. You know, So you don't know what their history is. You don't know what their struggles are. You don't know what their goals are. So really my sort of what I bring to every experience is first and foremost, listen. Listen to what they're saying. Listen to what's important to them. And then help them dialogue with each other because they might not know what's important. So you start giving them information and then you ask, you know, what do you think about this? How do you feel about this? And give them the space to talk to each other. And, you know, it's through that conversation that ultimately they're going to get to a point where, okay, yeah, we agree on that. Or the woman pulls the trump card and says, this is my body and my baby and this is what I'm doing. Have you had that? I have. I have. And, you know, you have to kind of be like, whoa, (laughs) I mean, it's totally true. It is her body and her baby. But if you want to bring your partner along with you, then you need to figure out how you're going to communicate with each other and bring him to a place of either understanding or at least to a place where you guys can agree. Because, you know, honestly, you were a couple before you were a mom, and I hope you're a couple afterwards. <laughs> All of a sudden, you become a marriage counselor. Well, <laughs> it's one of those things that I, I don't try to do any therapy, but I definitely encourage communication. You know, And sometimes I have to say, like, this is beyond my ability. Here's the number of a great counselor. You You've know? had to say that before? Absolutely. It, I'm, I'm not a counselor. I'm not going to try to be a yeah. counselor. But what I'm trying to get them to do is be able to communicate with each other before they have a baby in the mix. Because if you stuff all of that stuff until you're in labor and then all of a sudden you're storming around and you're blocking your partner out of what's going on, it's hard for you to be in labor and it's really hard for your partner to feel involved. And, you know, I'd rather just avoid that scenario. So let's get the dirty laundry out <laughs> while you're still pregnant yeah. and address it so that labor is a little more comfortable for everybody. Oh, man. It's tough. <laughs> it's really hard. Not, And that's not even mentioning postpartum. <laughs> yeah, which is something that you work a lot with, too. We should talk about that. Um, our experience, we were lucky that we didn't have much of that. But it is pretty common, right? Oh, yeah. I think the statistic is 70 to 80% of new moms experience some sort of postpartum mood disorder. So that's most women, you know. And a lot of us think, oh, well, it's that postpartum psychosis where you hear voices or you're worried that somebody's going to take the baby that's only one type of mood disorder. It's much more common for women to just feel blue and start crying because the baby's so beautiful or there's that deodorant commercial on TV or whatever. Whatever triggers it. Right. So to educate families in advance about what that looks like and how to navigate it, but then also to be around in the postpartum period. So when I'm a doula, I check in on the moms when they come home from the hospital or around day three, day five, which is when the hormonal shift happens. And just kind of touch base. How you doing? How are things going? You know, usually at that point, you've powered through a number of days with no sleep. And there is a point where your body is just like, okay, we're done with not sleeping. And it usually happens about then. So we sort of talk about, okay, how's the sleeping going? Right, just checking in. Checking in, sort of helping them navigate that. I think uh, that one of the roles that was really helpful for us that that you did for us, just being able to have someone to talk to like that, you can pick up the phone and say, hey, this is any sort of issue, just having that liaison without having to call the doctor and wait for an appointment, because most of the time it's not a medical emergency. Right. You just need to know, is it okay my kid is going to the bathroom 45 times a day, or I'm feeding this kid all the time? Or any other thing in the, you know, two o'clock in the morning, they're all scary. Yeah, I can't imagine going through the experience without having a doula, having you, having done that now that we've been through it. 
it really does and you realize the importance of it it's just such an just major component to the experience and it can just really just smooth the bumps out in the road so to speak the baby bumps <laughs> yeah for sure and that's that's great to hear it does you do a really really great job and i think that the island there's a reason that you're busy and i think more people are getting uh you know getting the word of hearing about hearing your name i wonder if that you're starting to uh you'll see more and more families um not just in different circles nantucket's an onion but just other families that maybe some immigrant families mm-hmm. are, are you working with any of them you know, I don't speak a second language, which is the one thing I'm kicking myself about, but I certainly have made some inroads. Like I had one couple that I, I love dearly. She is American, but her mother's Peruvian, so she grew up speaking Spanish. And the father's Bulgarian. So when I was at the birth, the father was speaking Bulgarian to his family on the phone, <laughs> and she was speaking Spanish to her mother, and then they would speak English to me. And I was just like, oh, wow. this is amazing. Yeah. You know, because... First of all, the kid that they had is going to grow up with all of these languages in in her life. Um, But then just to be able to be in such a melting pot of experiences, you know. So he would say, oh, in Bulgaria, this is what they do. And she would say, oh, well, you know, my Peruvian ancestors would use this herb. Um, So it was a really neat experience. And through them, I feel like the word kind of got out into those a little bit deeper into the population. Because the the immigrant, I mean, I guess everyone in Nantucket. We're all immigrants. We're all immigrants. Yeah. But I, I mean more the Latin community that's out here that's, it's just, that is growing yeah. that would start using you. But I guess if you didn't speak Spanish, it that's could get... on the docket to learn Spanish because you know it's a good thing to know how to do. Speaking of kids, and intre- your daughter has a very interesting uh, story, which I think it's important people that don't know about your daughter. If you could just talk a little minute about her accomplishment, She's very very motivated. Uh, young girl. Well, I appreciate you bringing up my kids because they were my first and only job for a long time. And I homeschooled my daughter until eighth grade. So I poured my heart and soul into both of my kids. I still do, but she's now 17 and uh, has graduated from Nantucket High School after spending, you know, eighth grade at the new school and then freshman, sophomore year at the high school. And then she was abroad for her junior year and lived in Oman, which is, which I was like, I don't even know where Oman is. You know, and where uh, is Oman? It's south of Saudi Arabia and east of Yemen. And the reason nobody knows where it is is because it's a very stable and Western friendly Middle Eastern country, which is pretty much the only reason I let her go. Um, because if she had been placed anywhere else, I don't think I would have been very At comfortable. At 16? She was 15, actually. So how does a 15-year-old girl get the idea that she wants to go to Oman? That's the question. That is the question. So <laughs> Where does that come from? She's an exceptional individual anyway. When she was born, she said hi. And I remember the midwife looking at me being like, did you just hear that? And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> so she came out having something to say. And since she was teeny tiny, has always wanted to learn Arabic. She was the only preteen that took a belly dance class out here because she was so drawn to this Middle Eastern culture. That's so I fascinating. I have no idea where it came from. Where does that come from? No idea. No On idea. On Nantucket, she has an affinity for Middle Eastern culture. Did you give her hummus or something? Uh, yeah, she had a lot of hummus in her life. So Baba Ganoush? Yep, all of that. <laughs> so I don't know where right. she got it. She came to us her sophomore year and she said, you know, I really want to study abroad. So, of course, we pushed her to the, like, go to Costa Rica because she speaks Spanish almost fluently. And I was like, Costa Rica sounds awesome. Like, why don't you go there? And so she looked at it, and it was pretty pricey. And I was like, you know what? This sounds like a vacation that I'm not going on. I don't know if I'm cool with that. And she's like, yeah, you know, I don't really want to go on a vacation study abroad either. I want to do something, like, totally different. And I was like, okay, why don't you check it out? Oh, and by the way, I'm not going to spend $10,000 for you to study abroad. And so she came back to myself and my husband, and she said, I found this full scholarship program. And we were like, great, full scholarship. She goes, the State Department runs it. And my husband and I look at each other. She found it on her own. On her own. And she said, this is a program that was started after 9-11. And the goal is to take American children and put them in highly Muslim populations and take children from highly Muslim populations and put them into U.S. uh, families as a way of creating a cultural understanding. cultural bridge, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And my husband and I were kind of like, okay. And we looked at the statistics. They get over 700 applicants for this program, and they take less than 60 students. And we were like, sweet, go ahead. 
you know? Not a chance. You're, Not a chance you're <laughs> going to get it. And it was typical, you know, apply for something. You got to write essays and you've got to get recommendations. And it was like pulling teeth and her essay wasn't that good. And I was like, sweet, she's not going. Because inwardly I was like, okay, a year in the Middle East? I don't know how psyched I am with that. No, what a very nerve wracking. It was a nail biter for me, honestly. And I, you know, I know now that I had a lot of um, misconceptions about the Middle East and the culture and what my blonde hair, blue eyed 15 year old daughter was going to experience. And I was scared. You know, I was honestly scared. Yeah. Sending a kid to the Middle East would be a pretty nerve wracking experience. Um, yeah. And the other part of me was like, you know what? We don't travel because we're you know, Nantucketers and a carpenter and a student essentially. So we don't have the money to travel, but I traveled a lot when I was younger. And I understand that there is a type of learning that happens when you travel that you cannot get from a book at all. So that part became a much stronger voice in my head. It's the best education you could get, right? Yeah. Just- and I was like, okay, it's the State Department. So they're not going to mess around with safety. You know, let's just see what happens. Well, wouldn't you know, she gets called. We're going to fly you to Washington, D.C., and you're going to have two days of interviews. And I look at my husband, and I was like, she's got it. They pay for you to fly. They paid for her to fly from here to Washington, D.C. And this is my 15-year-old that's never gone anywhere. So she gets on a plane in uh, Nantucket and flies to Boston. And in Boston, they say, we can't let you transfer planes because you're too young. You're a minor. And she calls me and says, okay, this is what's going on. And I'm like, I'm frantic. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What did you do? She, she pulls the trump card. I'm with the State Department. And she gets on the plane, and they fly her to Washington, D.C. Huh. And I was like, okay. Smart. She, this girl's got some This kid can figure smarts. it out. Yeah. I don't know where she got it, but she figured it out. So she goes through the interview process, and she calls us after the second interview. And she is, like, jumping up and down, ecstatic. Like, this was awesome. I totally nailed it. And I was like, okay, she's got it. And sure enough, like, a couple weeks later, we get the letter. She's received the scholarship. She's going to Oman for the year. For the year. For the year. At 15. At 15. Yeah. And that's when it really became real. And I had to do some serious soul searching about, okay, what does this really mean for me? So did you get in the computer and just start researching Oman and like trying to look up terrorist threats or what all, all, anything that you could think of that could be a possible? So the greatest thing about this program is they did a lot of education of the parents. And they ran a lot of webinars and they had blogs from previous students that had been there. So I was able to read a lot and I was able to ask a lot of questions. And I did. I studied the history of Oman. And really, since the 70s, when their most um, current leader was, he actually overthrew his father and he came into power. The first thing he did was he paved all the roads and he put in schools that were accessible to boys and girls. First, Which is very, for a Muslim culture, to know to do is very controversial yeah he was he was and it's not so much it's interesting because what i have learned is the faith the muslim faith is very different than the politics of the middle east so the faith itself does not say women cannot be educated they can't drive they have to cover the political systems have oppressed women and said our interpretation of this religion says that you can't drive that you have to be covered that you have to travel with a man So that was my first sort of rub with, like, what is the difference between the religion and the politics? Hmm. Um, Well, uh, like most, you know, religions, politics play a big portion of it. I was just wondering if Nantucket, does Nantucket have any practicing Muslims? Very few. Very few. There's a couple of families out here that that practice, but... You know, it's hard. Think about it. If you had a community elsewhere that was vibrant or you could go be the lone you know, practitioner of anything, it, that's a hard jump to make. Wow. You so know, she and the stereotypes. Go, yeah, stereotypes are, you know, are rampant, are, are rampant which is going to be more of a fight. And, you know, I would, Nantucket is amazing, but sometimes things that stick out a little, a little don't quite, people might be a little unobjective. Absolutely. And it was interesting when she got accepted to the program, um, a big component of the program is to come back and teach about what the experience was like as a way of breaking down those stereotypes. And before she went, I had a lot of people say to me, oh my God, aren't you scared? Aren't you worried? And yeah, to a degree I was. And I actually had somebody that I adore who sat at the table with my daughter and myself and said, don't you understand? They stone women to death. They rape them. It is horrible over there. And I was like, oh, God. oh my God. That's and my heavy. son was sitting next to me. And so it was, you know, and he's a very well-educated man. 
but he was worried about her, you know, and that's all he had heard. So we had to do a lot of educating ourselves so that we could educate others before she even left. And then when she came back, she did. She did a program at our high school. She did a program at the library. She spoke at Mitchell's. She did a lot of the Unitarian Church. She did a lot of educating others about really what it was like. Um, and it's a lot different than what we've been told. Well, the, the dynamic. What gets portrayed in the media and stuff, there's a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors about. The yeah, Muslim and I mean, don't get faith. me wrong, ISIS is bad for well, sure, but yeah. not every Muslim. Of course. You know, I mean, believes in that at all. You could say every religion has these extremists, yes. you know, so just because someone's a Muslim, I think that, that there's a, you know, ethnocentric, right? Uh, ethnocentric, what I want to say, it's lens that we see things. Yeah. Through. And you kind of, you know, the media can sort of fuel these misconceptions. Absolutely. But not everyone that wears a burqa or, you know, is a terrorist. Right. But, uh, you know, so your daughter's put into that world, you know, by choice. Yeah. She... Which is, to me, that's why I brought it up. That's why I thought it was important to talk about because it's really interesting that a 15-year-old girl, when you look at other 15-year-old girls and what's going on in their worlds, there's a hyper-evolved 15-year-old girl, which is pretty interesting. And it's she's, worth talking about. Yeah, she's <laughs> taught me a lot. She has taught me a lot. And, you know, I always say to people, your children can be your greatest teachers. And it takes a pretty humble parent to be able to hear that. Um, but for her, the message was loud and clear. I mean, she taught me so much about the faith and the culture. And really, the interesting thing now that she's had that experience is what what do you as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed you know, child that's going off to college. So you have a lot of advantages. What are you going to do with these advantages to help those that are disadvantaged? And that's where she's at in her life right now. Wow. Um, that's a pretty evolved uh, point of view because I don't think so. She's, she, she won't be a millennial. What, what, what's that generation? I have no idea what, if they have a name yet. <laughs> will they have a name? They probably will, but I don't know what it is. At this point. Because I don't think a lot of kids that age are are thinking that way. Right. You know, which is, you know, not everyone's going to be a Mother Teresa or or have that mindset. But people, I mean, she's already lived a life of experience by the time she's 17. She's probably going to go into politics. She has to go into politics. Well, it's interesting because she... um the college search was really... Where is she going to school? Heart-wrenching. She's going to American University in, in DC, Washington, In Washington, D.C., sure. And right now she wants to study international law. So, you know, this big experience and then coming back, it was hard to be a senior on Nantucket, having had that experience, and then you have to just, you know, be a senior and apply to colleges and all the rest of it. That was a hard thing. Um, but, you know, one of the big things with our kids is we don't want them to take for granted the gift it is to live on Nantucket, to have two parents, to have access to a college education. I don't want them to take it for granted because it is a sacrifice to pay, you know, for your child to go to, to college. And I don't want her to just sit there and go through the motions and, you know, have her father and I killing ourselves to pay for it. So we had a sit down discussion about, okay, here's where you're at now. Here's the opportunities that are in front of you, you know, and she's 17. Did you think about sending her to private school? No. We couldn't, we just couldn't. There was no way we could send her to private school. And, you know, you have to remember, too, that I homeschooled her until eighth grade. So to even let the reins off enough for her to go to How school. How does that work? When you when you do the homeschool, like, you, you'd wake up every morning and be like, all right, we're going to have math from totally. eight to nine and then totally. from ten. I had to be structured about it because I wanted my kids to have an education. I didn't want them to just kind of follow their whim and do whatever excited them. I mean, that was part of it. But they also needed to be able to do math and to do science and to be able to write an essay well. You know, I wasn't comfortable with just, oh, they'll figure it out. Did you get any judgmental comments? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Some people, uh, you know, the homeschool thing can rub people the wrong way. Well, the story I always tell is... You know, the kids in the corner, you know, playing, like, coloring himself and the parents be like, oh, well, she was homeschooled yeah, <laughs> or something and I, like I that. I actively you know? fought against that because I wanted my kids to, again, take advantage of the opportunity they had. They had a one-on-one instructor ratio, you know, so let's get down and do it. What are you interested in? Which is probably why my daughter took off with the Arabic and Middle Eastern cultures, you know, she, that's what lit her fire. We clearly so. did a good job. I mean, 
she's going to American University. It was a moment of like, okay, I didn't mess them up. I did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> it feels really good to know that, you know, we, we did well with that component. Nantucket's really served you well. It has. I feel like you're someone that's, you know, had a family and been able to take advantage of uh, Nantucket. And it does support what you do and your passion. It's been a really supportive community. To be Which in. is one of the reasons I wanted to have you as a guest, because you're clearly passionate about doula-isms. We'll go with that. <laughs> doula, doula-ine. Uh, I just made up a word. Doula-ine. <laughs> But yeah, you know, you know, like, and making it happen. And I feel like someone, when I first got to Nantucket, someone said, if you can think up of something, a, an occupation that can service something and you're passionate about it, you can support yourself or you can make a living out here. Well, and that's the unique thing about Nantucket is the community for here is not just a word. You know, it's people actively doing things. And I feel like the reason that I'm able to stay on Nantucket is because the community is receptive to not only my work as a doula or as a student midwife or as a childbirth educator or as a breastfeeding counselor, but they were also very supportive of the homeschooling component. And then I'm also a beekeeper, so I started a backyard beekeeping group. So you're, you, Yes, that's right. I have some of your honey right over here. Yeah, so that's been really fun because everybody's getting together and sharing information and you know figuring out where can we go with this great hobby and how can we help our community. So how many other people are doing it right now? So the last um, shipment of bees that came over, there were over 60 people ordering bees. So there's at least 60 beekeepers out here. They don't all come to the meetings. Um, we have a group that kind of ebbs and flows, and we tend to be pretty heavy. Now, on this is interesting. The, the beekeeping community. Talk about a niche, nerdy bunch I of beekeepers. I love the beekeepers. They, we are. We're totally a motley crew. Which is awesome. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons for bees. <laughs> Never thought of it that way, but yeah. Dungeons and Dragons for people that are into bees. Yeah, it's kind of cool. cool because you have people that have been keeping bees forever because they want honey, and that's their their you know niche with it, if you will. And then we have other people that are more like holistic with their beekeeping. It's part of their farm. It's part of local food, you know, and then we have people that, you know, initially I got into it because I had heard of all the colony collapse disorder and all the bees dying off. Well, I've read those. Are, I just read an article a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times. The bees are the indicator of that there's something wrong with the environment, Absolutely. right? Yep. But these are different type of bees. These, well, these are, are honey, honey bees. bees. Yeah. So these are um, the ones that actually you do harvest the honey um, from them. And they're different from bumblebees. Bumblebees are those big fat ones. Yep. They do the pollination and everything, but they don't make the amount of honey that a honeybee would make. Do you know about bee sting therapy? Yes, I've heard it. Okay, so this is the, when you would talk about nerds, there is this lovely man that knows everything about bees. And he was the one that came to the group and was like, let me tell you about bee sting therapy. So does it work? Because I have arthritis. He swears by it. He swears by it. So yeah, the idea is you get stung where you have the arthritis. So if you have arthritis in your knee, what they do is they put a yellow jacket, right? Well, I think you do it with honeybees, actually. So honeybees sting you too. So yeah, how many times do. have you been stung? Um, thank God not that many because I wear my suit for everything. <laughs> I don't like being stung by bees. Wow. See, this is why you're a great guest. You're <laughs> you're a doula, a mother, an amazing mother, and a honeybee wrangler. Yes. Yeah. So how many hives do you have? I have five on the island. And I do it with my son, so I'm teaching him how to keep bees. Uh, because what that, does the steam do? The, the smoke, the it smoke. actually drives them into the hive. So instead of them all sort of bubbling out and going after you, they go into the hive um, and kind of take care of each other so they're not so nasty. And how much does one of those bee hot, one of those boxes, those crates, yeah. how much uh, honey will that yield? It's going to depend on you know how your bees are doing and the weather is a big indicator of what's going on with the honey but last year i was averaging like 40 or 50 pounds of honey per hive wow yeah which is so fun when you open that up and it's just tons you of hear that yeah i would be scared shitless initially i was sweating bullets and i would who shake. got you into it who took you to okay the so i went to one of those nha brown bag lunches that they run in the winter and it's all i don't know what what is that sorry so my dog's freaking out hang on a second yeah. hank enough um, so the, the, um, Nantucket Historical Association runs a beekeeping. No, they ran a series of lectures at noon on, you know, some random day of the week in the winter. And honestly, I went to a couple and it was like all people over 60, <laughs> which, you know, that's great. But you know, 
So I was just bored out of my head. I'm like, I want to go find out about bees. And David Berry, who's a beekeeper out here, ran this fantastic workshop about how a hive works and what all the bees do and, and the whole process of keeping bees. And I saw that and I was like, this is awesome. I totally want to do this. And so I mentioned to him, like I was a total nerd and was like, oh, this is awesome. And he was like, yeah, you should totally do it and didn't hear anything. And so then at the same time, um, I talked to Sam Slozik, who has more than farm. Yeah, I know Sam. And Sam was like, yeah, you should totally do it. Do you want to do it? And I was is like, Sam, yeah. a, he's a beekeeper? Oh, yeah, he's a beekeeper. Oh. Uh, he's a jack of many trades. Yeah. I and can't. so I said to him, I was like, you know, I want to do this. And he's like, yeah, you totally should. I'll help you out with it. And I didn't think anything of it until March. And he calls me up and he's like, so the bees are coming on Wednesday. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you told me you wanted to keep bees. And I was like, I don't have a hive. I don't have anything. He's like, well, let me see what I have on the farm. So he shows up at my house Wednesday with all the equipment and the bees. And I was like, okay, I guess we're going to do this. And he dumped, he shows me, he's like, this is how you dump all the bees in, blah, blah, blah. I'll talk to you next do month. The, do the bees just pour out like a... So they come in like this net box, you know, with a cap on the top of it. And you basically dump, take the cap off and dump them all into the hive. And you have to feed them in the beginning. And they sort of set up their own little system. So it's not a lot of maintenance in the beginning other than feeding them. What do you feed them? Sugar water or honey in the beginning. Okay. Until there's forage. Um, and where did, he, where did he buy the bees from? How much do bees cost? So bees come in a box of like 10,000 bees plus a queen. And it's about a pound of bees. Okay. And they can cost anywhere from 100 bucks to you know close to 200 bucks, depending on varieties or whatever. So he, yeah. Which isn't that expensive. No, it's not bad, especially if, you know, if they all live and you're And where do they well. come from? Where do you get the bees? They're coming from all over the country. So this group that I got from him, they came from Georgia. There's a big apiary down there where they raise them. And they oh put them God, on a plane and they Oh my God, this is so nerdy. Up. I'm sure there's a whole network of like chat rooms of bee boards. Uh-huh. It gets crazy. So I jumped into it, like really not knowing anything. Yeah. He was like, I'm going to help him out. I'm going to help you out. But he's a farmer. He got really busy. So I was the nerd and went on and read everything. And I asked all these, like I called David and I was like, so is this okay? And I called some other friends. I was just persistent. And I stumbled through my first year and they survived and they made it through the winter. And I would, Sam told me, let them be the first year. Just, In the winter, you just leave them alone. They just yeah, kind of do their own. Yeah, they just kind of do their own thing, provided they have enough food. Do they do bees hibernate? They is don't it, hibernate, is that a stupid but they, question? they slow down considerably. Their whole body system slows down. And actually, the bees live a lot longer through the winter. Uh, but they do need to stay warm. They need to stay in the middle, not get wet, not get cold. not you know. So there's all these conditions. I totally got lucky, and they survived. So then in the spring, here we go. Bees are booming. And I was like, okay, this is cool. So then I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if I could get these people that know stuff about bees together so we could talk about beekeeping? Yeah. And that's how I started the Backyard Beekeepers. <laughs> um, it kind of had a selfish motivation, but it, but you... it was exciting. Like so many people love to talk about bees. It's totally geeky. But I've told, I've heard so many swarm stories because they get so excited about, oh, this time I got these bees out of a tree. A swarm story? Yeah. So when bees leave the hive, they swarm. And that sometimes that happens in the spring and they'll go up to a tree and they'll make like, you know, like a Winnie the Pooh, like a bag of bees in a tree. Right. You know, but there's beekeepers out here that will go and get those swarms and bring them back to their hives or sell them to other beekeepers because there's your box of bees. What do you wrangle them with? Is that what the... the so the stories are hilarious and it is. What do you wrangle them with? Some people, it's a trash can. They just cut off the branch and throw them in a trash can, throw the lid on it, call it good. Oh my God. Other people have built their own like dry vacuums where they suck them into the vacuum and they go into the canister and then, you know, so it's everything in between. Sounds, I'm such a loser that I would probably like Google like bee death and find out the story. Cause you can go into anaphylactic shock. Totally. How many bees, like if you have more than like five bee stings, It just right? depends on your chemistry. Some people are not allergic at all to bee stings. I would be then, the guy that got the anaphylactic shock after so two stings. Some beekeepers keep an EpiPen with them. Yeah. And actually this woman that has been such a mentor to me, she's highly allergic and she carries an EpiPen with her at all times. Now that's, that's just, kind of that's plain, <laughs> that's just plain nutty. But if you have a I'm suit, allergic to bees and I'm going to be a beekeeper. If you have a suit and you're you know what you're doing, they they're not aggressive. Who is this woman? I want to talk to her. I'm she not needs, naming names, she, but she's she awesome. needs she needs a talking to. She's awesome. She knows so much. And so much of it too, like I learned from David is about being a Zen beekeeper and just being mindful of the way. So they respond to your energy? They is totally it? do. If you're in there like banging things around and freaking out, they're going to be mad. But if you're calm, cool and collected and you're just taking your time, it's a lot easier. Oh my god, my dog is. Your dog is. My dog out. is freaking out. 
folks, if my... Uh, if you hear the whining, it's not a if child. If you hear the whining, it's not a child. <laughs> well, he's like a child, but he's just being crazy. So listen, Sonny, that was, that was interesting. We're at an hour. That was a great talk. Awesome. Thank you. Sonny Daly, Nantucket's only doula. I would encourage anyone that's having, uh, that's going to have a baby to contact Sunny. She's unbelievably uh, knowledgeable and passionate about uh, helping the process of childbirth, both before and after. And you helped us. It was amazing. And I, you certainly are an asset to the Nantucket community. So the more you keep doing it, and pretty soon, when will you be actually be a midwife, do you think? I'm hoping in the spring I'll be ready to sit for the exam. So that's the goal. Well, microbiology stands between me and <laughs> and my midwifery certificate. At this and point. and lastly, before you go, did you go to the dead shows? Oh, did the you dead shows? I streamed them all did because you? actually I met my husband at a dead show. So if there were no Grateful Dead, none of this would have ever happened. So we're big deadheads. Um, so you stream the shows? We stream them because we don't have the finances to go. But I swear to you, I was crying like a baby at the oh last one. Oh my god, she's like, such a deadhead. So she had devil sticks out. She was doing <laughs> noodling. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Those were the days. Didn't uh, lastly, did Trey do a good job? Yes or no? Yes. Trey, Trey did, did an outstanding. I mean, how can you be Jerry? But he was Trey. I he know. Awesome. I know. I saw Karen Oberg on the beach yesterday, and she said Trey was magical. He was. <laughs> he really was. Oh, uh, well, Sunny Daly, thank you so much for coming on Inside the Whale. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. That was All good, right. right? That was good. I thought it was good. It was a great conversation. Sunny Daly, thank you again for coming and sitting down on Inside the Whale. We need you. The island needs you. And we thank God that you're here. Thank you so much, Sunny. And if you ever need any of her services, uh, you can find her information at the hospital, any of the doctor's office. I, I, she has flyers up. And, uh, you can find her on Facebook, Sunny Daly. If you need her doula-een or midwife and training services, she's your girl. Thanks, Sunny. All right, time to go to the beach, guys. It's Friday. It's 80. It's humid. I can't wait. We'll see you next time. I told the